it really wasn't until I would say my 30s that I began to kind of separate exercise from the aesthetic goals and really pay close attention to what actually made me feel good. And, you know, what made me feel good, not because I felt like I was, it was helping me to inch closer to meeting kind of like the social ideal of how I should look, how men think women should look, but what actually like made me feel good in a sustainable way. And running for me is a, is absolutely a spiritual practice too. And it's become even more so as I've, you know, as I've worked to separate it from the goal of like running toward a bikini body. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. I love that the book started with why you started to get into bar and what, like, how, can you talk about that experience? Because one, I think so many women can identify with. Yeah, absolutely. The The book's origin story kind of began about five years ago. I was preparing for my wedding of all things. And I'm sort of embarrassed. I'm always a little bit sheepish to tell this story because it feels a little bit cliche. I'm a, I'm a lifelong runner, but I had never really done boutique fitness. And I kept passing a bar studio in my neighborhood that was, you know, sort of making all kinds of lofty claims about, um, about offering a dancer's body and this and that. And so eventually I just thought, I'm just going to give this a try. You know, in general, I believe that we shouldn't have to change ourselves, you know, for our partner. I, but I, I was intrigued. So I, I started taking bar and I pretty immediately loved how it made me feel. I hadn't really ever done like a full body strength training workout, but I was also very intrigued by the bar subculture. And in particular, I, it sort of struck me that despite the fact that the studio felt very prim and almost a little sterile, a lot of the moves in bar were actually a bit sexual, you know, the tucks and the pelvic thrusts. And so being uh, a feminist journalist and a women's health journalist, I decided to do a little bit of digging. And I was really, I was surprised to discover that Bar was invented in the late 1950s by this woman named Lottie Burke, who sure enough, among other things, created her workout to help women improve their sex lives and to connect with their physicality and tune into their own desires. And so from there, I was kind of off and running. I wrote about Lottie Burke for The Cut and uh, the piece went viral. And along the way, I also was really shocked to discover that nobody had told this bigger story of how the women's fitness movement was born and how it both really has liberated women and also oppressed women. 
Man, isn't that the truth? Like the this idea that there are things in life that give us freedom, but also then sort of open up the door to use your word oppression. It, I was laughing and I'm guessing this was the intention throughout the book, like how often it would be like, oh, if women move too much or if they ran too hard, if they ran more than two miles and they're, they're, your, your uterus is going to fall out. Like the things that we used to believe about our bodies or that we were told about our bodies were so wild that we sort of accepted those. But then in opening this door, we also created this aesthetic that told us who we were supposed to be. It was just kind of this new thing to to fit inside, to fit ourselves inside of. Will you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about what it was like, you know, we're, we're having this conversation in 2022 and we'll touch on this, but as women who have access and resources, you and I can go do any sort of form of fitness that we're able to get a hold of today. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about the forties, the thirties, the twenties, women were not exercising. We were not, you know, we, will you talk a little bit about what it felt like back then? Yeah, absolutely. So my book begins in really in the 1950s, the post-World War II era, which was this era of really strict gender norms. You know, during the war, women had taken the place of men in the workforce in a lot of cases. And so when the men came back, you know, there was this sort of, there was this fear that both women were becoming too masculinized and that men wouldn't um, sort of have a place. And so that helped to fuel this time where to a large extent, masculinity was associated with strength and femininity with weakness. And this very much translated to the way that women were encouraged and discouraged from moving their bodies. You know, like you said, um, there was a lot of fear around women's bodies. You could say there still is today, but at that time in particular, I think the idea of women's strength was really threatening. And so there were all these kind of social checks, you know, like if a woman lifted weights, it could quote, turn her into a man. That was like a very pervasive belief. And it was believed in a kind of literal sense that like women would grow, you know, grow a mustache and um, develop these traditionally masculine traits. Um, Also the old uterus falling out (laughs) uh, belief, which was incredibly common. So while women were certainly, you know, moving their bodies, doing housework, they weren't really moving in ways that were benefiting their, their physical health, their mental health. There were sports. I mean, there have always been a, a, a select handful of kind of socially acceptable women's sports. But for most women after childhood, after girlhood, they were really discouraged from sweating and from being, you know, engaging in vigorous physical activity. And kind of what that reinforced, you know, if you think about it, and this is actually something that has just been talked about a lot recently. We just hit the 50th anniversary of Title IX, you know, which, which gave so many more women access to sports. You know, when you think about what that means for men and women, at that time, it meant that men who were encouraged to be physical and strong had these sort of, you know, continual opportunities to develop a trust in their bodies and a physical competence and confidence that that translated to other parts of their lives. 
but women didn't have that opportunity. And if anything, again, it was just, there were all these social messages that taught women to fear their bodies. And so that's one of the reasons why the, the rise of women's fitness and the pioneers who opened these doors really helped to, you know, really impacted women's lives beyond just giving them opportunities to sweat. I love too, that you said, use the word trust because on a totally different subject and also absolutely related, a a big passion for me is women understanding how their cycle works and how their hormones work. It's been hugely life-changing for me to get this education that I should have gotten as a young Mm -hmm. girl and didn't. But this idea of lack of trust in our own bodies, I feel like this hits us on so many levels. I feel like we're disconnected from our intuition and and knowing to trust that that wisdom that's inside of us that says, this is the right choice or this is the wrong one. The idea that you literally don't know what your body's capable of until you start to test it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have an opportunity to test it. And so then I feel like this creates like a, it's almost like this is your body, but you're completely disconnected from it. You're not sort of centered inside of yourself. And so what I love about this conversation is we're talking about what this looks like historically for women, but really there are so many women today and so many listeners of this conversation who are going to identify with this, like that they've never really seen what their body's capable of, because the only way I know to do that is to push up against what you think your limitations are. So as you started to do this research and kind of learn about, you know, you started with bar and then I love the book because you break it down into different modalities. Like here was a pioneer for, you know, I'm a long distance runner too. So I love the chapter on running. Mm. So I was like, Oh yes, (laughs) so important. As you discover these different women who are leading out in these areas, what did you discover about them as individuals that they were really doing something that was so different to the time period. Because I feel like the women who listen to this podcast, a lot of them encounter family members who don't understand, partners who are not supportive, who they want to challenge themselves. They want to sign up for that first half marathon. They want to push themselves into a different place, but they have those voices in their life who tell them, who who challenge them. So you essentially wrote about these really brave women who were stepping outside of societal norms, were there things that you discovered about them that set them up to be able to do that? Or was it just following a passion or a calling and putting one foot in front of the Mm. other? Many of these women, many of the pioneers I wrote about were really, really brave because they did defy, you know, gender norms and social norms from the eras in which they lived. Catherine Switzer, who's the kind of the running pioneer I focus on in my running chapter, she discovered from a very early age that she loved how running made her feel. You know, it, it, she called it her superpower. And this was sort of a common theme for a lot of women. It was they, they moved first, <laughs> you know, they, they discovered how great movement made them feel. And then in part, you know, that kind of gave them the, the courage to fight for the right to move. So Catherine very famously um, was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon with a number before women were allowed to enter the race. Women were not actually allowed to enter the Boston Marathon until 1972. But in 1967, I I know. It's wild. Like I just, I really want, because I I think I, I had some awareness of this history, but I was really astounded at how 
at, I mean, you tell the story of, of a woman attempting to run the, and he literally the, the, um, race director yeah. tackles her like, yeah. because women, it was like, how dare a woman step foot in this completely male domain running, like not trying out for the NFL, like literally just running was mm-hmm. not allowed if you're a woman. And, and, and I really want people to grasp this. I think you just said 1972. This isn't mm-hmm. 1940. <laughs> 1972 was not that long ago. Even when you talk about Title IX and celebrating the 50th anniversary, it's only been here for 50 years. So I, I really just want listeners to understand like these are these are newer things that have been established. And these are things that are established here. Not necessarily, there's still so many places in the world where you wouldn't be able, you still can't go run in the States. You still can't do things that we have the freedom to do in this space. So I just, I really want people to get that, that um, women had, she literally fights for the right. And, and people, you talk about this a bit, but that women would run it, but they'd run it rogue, right? Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Before women were officially allowed into you know, races or most races, sometimes they, women who had just discovered long distance running on their own would, would enter and run, but they were kind of like these ghost competitors because they, they weren't included in the the official records and which is just, you know, wild. And there was even after Catherine Switzer crashed the Boston marathon, one of the race organizers said something like, no women ran on this course today, you know, because, you know, women didn't count. And it's the crazy thing is like the, the real, the justification for why women were excluded was because there was this fear that it was dangerous for a woman to run more than two miles. And yeah, just speaking to the recency, I mean, that was part of what intrigued me about this history, just how recently so many of these opportunities have been made available to women. But I always like to talk about the fact that the sports bra wasn't invented until 1977, which feels shockingly that recent. tripped me out. I, yeah. I told my boyfriend when I was reading, I was like, oh, 1977 was the first time that someone was like, oh, let's make this not so painful. Let's make this easier. Because before then, were women binding their breasts or what were they doing to to even be able to try anything at all? Yeah. Some women would wear two bras to attempt to create some compression. If you were small breasted, you would sometimes run braless. Some women would get a bra that was a size too small. There were a lot of kind of not great makeshift options. It wasn't until the late seventies that for all, you know, all of the reasons we've talked about and more that women, adult women were moving and exercising on such a scale that it kind of, you know, demanded an invention like the sports bra. That's a good point. I do think though of, you were talking about socially accepted sports and I Mm. think of horseback riding, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, women have been allowed to do that forever. That is, that is arduous and difficult and that it, it is so hard to, you know, especially if you're sort of writing in a traditional English style, like that really requires athleticism. So it's almost like we were doing these things or women were doing these things and just not getting credit for what that took. And even as you were talking about women, you know, crashing the marathon, what I'm thinking about something you and I can both identify with as writers is it's sort of like female writers, you know, for so long, if you wanted something published, 
it was published under a pen name that was a man, or a man got credit for your research or your work, or you got in any way that you could get in. I just think that there's such in that history, like understanding how hard women have had to fight for this opportunity, I hope then encourages people who are listening to like, okay, what Mm. what can I do because I'm able to? I always think of doing what you can with what you've got where you're at. Enthusiasm is great. And I was just going to say, it's actually, it reminded me of an important detail that I didn't mention about Catherine Switzer's story, which is that the way she was able to enter the race was using her, her byline. She was also a writer and she used the byline KV Switzer. Uh, right. She was inspired by JD Salander. And so that allowed her to enter. And I mean, you're so right. I think again, this, this, there have been some conversations about this. I recently wrote about this in the context of Title IX, but as recently as the 70s, you know, it was like perfectly legal to discriminate against a woman for her perceived lack of intellect. You know, it was just believed that, so I shouldn't say across the board, but many people believed that women didn't have what it took, you know, intellectually as well. So it it is a, you know, good reminder that um, so many of the opportunities we have today are, are recent and we had to fight for them and we have to keep fighting for them. Right. Right. So we had these emergence of different things for women to move their bodies in different ways. And you have something like running, which is um, just its own beautiful spiritual experience for people who love to run. I understand for other people, it's like the worst, their worst Mm. nightmare. But when you're talking about the idea of bar, which I found really interesting and the, the different kind of pioneers of that and the different Shot. I've never done bar, but I have to tell you that reading the book definitely, I was like, well, maybe I need to try <laughs> with bar at trying to think of the nice way to say this, that it was the sort of marketing for it was, you know, that you would have, it, it was still sort of marketed that you wanted your body to look a certain way for men, right? Like that you want, it was like this kind yes. of sexual thing. And it wasn't, it, there were forms of movement that existed for women that were about expressing what your own body could do. And then there were a lot of them that were like, how to stay trim, how to lose weight, how to, so how do we sort of balance those two things or, or what did you find as you continue to do research of like, Hey, this opened a door and it also shoved us into a box. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So yeah. And when I talk about how fitness for women has been both liberating and oppressive, that's exactly kind of what I'm talking about. So, you know, to go back to what we were talking about earlier with the country being really threatened by women's strength when the women's fitness industry was born, the kind of, you know, the only way for fitness to be really marketed and made socially acceptable at that time was to sell it as a beauty tool and a tool for physical transformation. Lottie Burke, the inventor of bar, absolutely. You know, I mean, she was, she and her workout were full of contradictions and, and we really see those contradictions in so many of these uh, stories and women, women's lives throughout of both offering women something kind of radical and, you know, that physical trust and confidence we talked about while also reinforcing these messages that for so many women have infused fitness culture and moving their bodies with feelings of guilt and shame and 
pressure. Even Jane Fonda, who many people kind of recognize as the modern godmother of women's fitness, um, her motto was discipline is liberation. And, you know, if you think about that, it's such a loaded idea. There is, there can be much to be gained from finding something we love and, and sticking to it. But at the same time, you know, we now know from research that we, we reap the most overall benefits from exercise when we don't view it as punitive, when we view it as something that makes us feel good, you know? The other thing that is really important to mention here, and that was really a consistent theme throughout the book, is that even as so many more opportunities were created for women, the fitness industry also does have a history of exclusion. You know, it has historically really been marketed to white women with disposable income. And for, you know, since its, since its genesis and really, really up to today, so many women have lacked, you know, the time, the safe space, the means in which to move. So when we talk about kind of fitness in the language of personal responsibility today, and, and even things like discipline and willpower, I think it's very easy to kind of forget or not realize that, um, it's not that easy for so many women, you know, it's, it really is a luxury. It's a privilege. It's a privilege and not a right in, in this country anyway, to um, be able to carve out that time to, to move and kind of look after our well-being in that way. Absolutely. And I think that unfortunately, this thing that has the opportunity to be healing for us, spiritual for us, make us feel better, like all these good things for so long has been marketed to your point from a place of shame mm. that there are a thousand layers and so many, it's so triggering for so many people. And I think for anyone listening to this, who maybe they are feeling a little like, Oh, any conversation about movement or fitness reminds them of something that doesn't make them feel very good. My hope, my thought, my, you know, like what I wish for all of us is that we pursue health from a place of how we feel, not how we look, you know, so it's going back to that Genesis, as you spoke of, of to make it okay for women to do that. It had to be that it was making them better for their man, right? Like, Oh, he's going to think you're so hot. Your, your body looks like this. You're, uh, you're so feminine, you know, that whole thing, because God forbid men should feel uncomfortable with the, you know, level that women are getting to. It's going back to that time period you talked about after the war, women were asked to step into these roles like, hey, we need you. Come be in the factories, come do these jobs. Come, you know, the boys are over at sea and we, you know, we need you to do these things. And then as soon as the boys came back, go back to where you were. But they had been exposed to this whole new world and you sort of can't step back inside. So it's like exactly. fighting for these opportunities for ourselves. I just want to be cautionary to listeners, like any time that you're doing something because of how you want to look, it's never, never, never going to serve you at sort of the level of your soul, right? Like it's always, even if you're like, damn, I'm doing this work and I look amazing. How does that make you feel? 
because I, I definitely the journey that I've gone on with my own fitness, and I'd be curious yours as well, is it always started from a place of wanting to lose weight. I didn't grow up. I was not athletic. My family didn't play sports. We didn't do things like that. So when I first started to move my body, it was a hundred percent to lose weight. That was, that was the only thing that I knew. And over time, I've really come to understand that it is at the most core level, like a spiritual practice for me. It is like going to church. It is like, I guess it's sort of my form of church. And it's this thing that I do for myself so that I can be a better mom, so I can be a better leader at work, so that I can lower those stress hormones and and all of that stuff. But what was your personal fitness journey? Did you grow up with a really healthy relationship with movement? Or is this sort of newer in as you've gotten older? Mm. Yeah. So I grew up in the eighties and nineties and, you know, in the book, I, I talk a lot about how growing up in the era of great shape, Barbie, <laughs> whose tagline was, you know, she works out and looks great. And I don't know if, if you remember, um, get in shape girl toy sets, which don't, uh, t- if you uh, go to YouTube, I mean, it's sort of astounding. They were these basically like as the fitness craze and the aerobics craze was just reaching a fever pitch, at, you know, with Jane Fonda and everything throughout the eighties, they came out with, it was almost like a, a mini me version of what the moms were doing. So they were these like exercise kits for girls. And when you, when you look at the commercials, it's sort of like, you know, to today's ear, it's just like astounding to hear the language that was used. So on one hand, you know, I think I grew up with this message that, Compared to like, let's say, you know, when my mom or her mom was growing up, exercise was just was something that ladies did, you know, and not only that, it not only was it acceptable, but it was sort of expected of women. And at the same time, exercise's primary goal was to control your figure. You know, I, we didn't really use the word figure there, but to, to control, to control your body and your shape. Both of my parents were very active throughout my childhood, and I'm lucky that they modeled for me, you know, they really found a lot of joy in movement. And so I was just sort of a product product of all these mixed messages. And then as like a teenager in the 90s, basically like as as women have gotten more opportunities to move, like with every decade, the expectations for how women's bodies should look and the ideals have inched further out of reach to the point where most women, doesn't matter how much you exercise, could ever achieve them, you know? And so I think growing up as a teenager in the 90s, especially when like, you know, it was an era of both like extreme thinness, but also the sort of bodies of steel mentality was really rampant. Yeah, I was I was pretty self-conscious about my body and um, as like an average size person. And while I did like how movement made me feel, I definitely like my primary incentive was definitely to shape the way I looked and, you know, control or lose weight. It really wasn't until I would say my 30s that I began to kind of separate exercise from the aesthetic goals and really pay close attention to what actually made me feel good. And, you know, what made me feel good, not because I felt like I was, it was helping me to 
inch closer to meeting kind of like the social ideal of how I should look, how men think women should look, but what actually like made me feel good in a sustainable way. And running for me is, is absolutely a spiritual practice too. And it's become even more so as I've, you know, as I've worked to separate it from the goal of like, running toward a bikini body, you know? Yeah. 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 I would also say a big, a big thing for me, do you know, are you familiar with Enneagram numbers? Yeah. Okay. So I'm a three, which is an achiever. I felt so good when I learned to run and took up running. And in retrospect, I would say a big part of why I felt so good is it's man, it ticks an achiever's box, right? Like, oh, I'm going to, I've never run two miles without stopping. I'm going to, oh, and I did it. And now I'm going to run three and getting to a place where I ran a half marathon. Well, first I ran a 5k and that felt like a miracle and then half Mm. and then a full, but I can understand now in retrospect that a lot of the rush I was getting was because I was achieving something. And I really had to learn a lot of the last five or 10 years for me has been about learning how to pursue a goal in a way that feels good instead of I'll pursue this at any cost. I'll destroy myself to get to this thing so that I can prove that I can run 26 miles. That was huge for me because I actually got to a place for a minute where I hated running because I think I have abused that relationship so much that it just became about how many miles I could get in. It didn't, it wasn't about the process or like sort of being there in my body or feeling what I was feeling. It was just about getting to a certain mileage. And if I didn't get to that mileage, I would feel really discouraged. I would be really hard on myself. So it's so interesting, I think, how we start from one place, but it helps us get to the next. And I just think if we keep coming back to this idea of how does it feel, how does it feel, how does it feel, that's what's going to serve us best, right? In that, I can't believe, I would have never believed um, I'll be 40 next year, that I would have days where I'm like, you know what, I'm going to take a walk. That's what's going to feel really good today. That's all I got. I'm just going to take a walk. I'm literally going to move my body because there was a part, there was a version of me five or 10 years ago who would have felt like a failure because I didn't push because I didn't. So it's just an interesting journey to get to this place where choosing movement based on what's going to feel good in, in my body today has been really profound for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I just turned 41. So it's, oh, it's, it's happy it's, birthday. Thank you. Not so bad on this side of things, but right. um, I feel great. I'm every year. <laughs> I don't know if you ever watched the Oprah show, but like literally every time Oprah turned a new decade, she'd be like, guys, forties are where it's at. And yeah. then she'd be like, okay, fifties are where it's at. So I'm just going to be Oprah every decade. I'm going to be like, yes, this totally. is what it's all about. <laughs> it's all we can do. I mean, right. right. Um, but it's so funny you mentioned walking because, and, and I think actually, you know, I've heard from a lot of people during the pandemic that they rediscovered walking. There has been kind of like a walking boom, but I was in the same boat. Like in the past, if I didn't have the energy or the time to go for a run, it was kind of all or nothing. You know, I would just, I would just end up sitting at my desk all day, you know? Um, but I've really, and part part of this came from researching the book and looking at the science of exercise. But now if I, if I don't have it in me to go for a run, I will go for a walk. And I know I feel so much better. And I think, I, I think we are kind of at the beginning, the very beginning of a shift um, where there is more of an understanding that to exercise, it's not, 
it's been kind of sold to us as this, like, as fitness being this all-consuming lifestyle. And in order to participate, you have to be super committed, you know, and committed to one type of movement and wear the right uniform and, and just it be, you know, sort of part of your identity when, we know that actually we're more likely to exercise, you know, when it's just when we can easily integrate it into our, into our lives. And I mean, it's, the science is pretty clear on the fact that like taking a 20 minute walk around the neighborhood is better than doing nothing. So I think that thanks to the pandemic, we're kind of moving into this era where we're moving a little bit away from the like, harder, faster, stronger, intense era of fitness lifestyle that we saw for the past, you know, two decades and into one that's a bit, a bit gentler. Um, And that's really about just like you were saying, tuning into what actually makes us feel good and what feels sustainable. Right. I would also say a big lesson for me has been depending on where I'm at in my cycle, I, I just don't have the energy to do something like there are certain weeks of my cycle where I want to go and do eight miles. Right. Or I want to go do something a bit more intense. And then there are other times where if I push myself to do something that hard, it's going to definitely affect me physically, but more than anything affect me emotionally, which is not something I understood. It like has taken this long to get to a place where I understand what happens to the hormones in your body. If you do a really intense workout and there are certain times in your cycle where that can force your sex hormones to drop so much that you have that really hard emotional crash. Like you get really sad or you get really irritable or you get really angry. And it's because you actually pushed yourself harder than you should have. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. getting to a place where we can really listen in, I just think is so, so valuable to all of us. And what I love about this book, which like I, I literally found it because I was just walking through a bookstore. I think I told you this when I sent you mm-hmm. the email. I was walking through a bookstore. And I was like, what's this? And I will tell you, I've uh, rarely does this happen, but I've been out in the world with that book, like on airplanes or at the hair salon. And when we're like, oh, I just read that and I loved it. And so I'm like, oh, wow. that's so cool. <laughs> Is that I hope, uh, and I really want to encourage listeners to read because I think the most inspiration that exists for any of us is our history, is, is really understanding these origin stories and, and what it will mean to you. I think because the book is divided into different modalities and different kinds of movement, uh, the ones that I identified with were the actual, were the ones that I do, right? So whatever you're into, I feel like you're going to find sort of the pioneer of your modality, which is so cool. Were there any stories inside of it that just totally shocked you or in doing your research, you like had no idea that this was how beyond like Lottie Burke and mm. the, <laughs> the sexual like exercises, was there anything sure. you were like, oh, I had no idea. You know, well, there were, there were so many sort of, you know, micro stories like that, that I encountered and I tried to include all of them or as many of them as possible in the book so that the reader would be as kind of surprised and delighted along the way as I was. But one that really stands out is the story of the invention of Lycra and specifically the Lycra leotard. You know, it's interesting today, I think we really take for granted that like our clothes have stretch in them, but that was not always the case. And so The short version is that Lycra 
the, the fiber of lycra was originally invented by the DuPont Chemical Company in the like 1940s and 50s. And it was invented to create a more comfortable girdle. Now, comfortable should really be in air quotes because girdles were hellish, uh, really before and after lycra. But um, DuPont saw, you know, at that point, like every woman above the age of 12 wore a girdle that was just a prerequisite um, for wearing clothes. And so they spent years and years developing lycra. They created lycra girdles. At first, they were a huge hit. And then Interestingly, throughout the 60s and 70s, with the rise of the women's movement and kind of the youth generation at the time, women started ditching their girdles. And and DuPont was like, what are we going to do? And then it was in that moment. And actually, at that point, there were warehouses full of like unused lycra fabric (laughs) that dance, you know, dance wear manufacturers, but, but really instructors like some of the early aerobics instructors began snatching it up and making the first lycra leotards, which were really revolutionary for women at the time because they supported an adult woman's bodies before then leotards were made of like natural fibers and then maybe nylon. And they were really meant more for like little girls. And so there are these stories of women who, after sort of being beholden to this, the fashion rules of, of this, the 50s and 60s, um, found slipping into a leotard, lycra leotard, to be just completely liberating. And the fact that it was originally invented as this, intended to be this sort of fiber of restriction, and then it became this fiber of freedom for women, is just such a great twist. So there's more to the story. And, and, you know, we could debate leotards forever because, you know, some people felt they were a little too exposed, but um, it's a great, it's a fascinating story. Are there trends that you're seeing today or that you've seen in sort of the last five years that in the fitness space for women that you feel like are really exciting? Or do you feel like kind of like, what's the state? that you feel like we're in, is it, are good things happening? Are bad things happen? Like, what do you, Mm. what do you think of today? Yeah. Well, okay. There's, I mean, you know, there's both. Um, I think we are moving toward a point where people are seeking out exercise and women, especially for mental health. There's a growing body of research showing all of the truly amazing ways in which exercise can benefit our mental health. You know, social media, of course, has had a huge impact on the fitness world in ways, I think, you know, both both positive and, and negative. It's allowed people who really don't have any credentials to kind of position themselves as fitness experts and gain a lot of followers. And, you know, it's, it's really only based on looking fit, but at the same time, because it allows us to kind of sometimes circumvent like these traditional power structures, social media, you know, has allowed, it's, it's creating much more diversity in fitness and it's helping to expand our understanding of what a fit body looks like. We're seeing people who are not in that, you know, historical tradition of thin white women rising and, and their communities are, you know, saying are are very thankful to be able to have a role model who looks like them. You know, I think we also, the other side to that is the social media is then influencing other parts of our culture. Like we still have a really long way to go 
in terms of making, for example, like athleisure really size inclusive, but we have started to see some progress in terms of the types of models, you know, who are um, featured on like major athleisure retailers' websites. And, and it's really, I do think we're taking steps toward making fitness more inclusive and accessible for all women, but there's always, we have a long way to go. Yeah. You know, because it's such a, it's so pervasive and it's just a part of our culture. I think you, at least I don't always, or haven't always seen things like the models or things like the mannequins as this constant reminder of who we're supposed to be or what our body's supposed to look like or what we should be aiming for. I remember it's got to be within the last couple of years. It's not that long ago going to Target. Mm. And it was the first time that I had ever seen a normal looking body on a mannequin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And also that all the clothes were in one section together as opposed to plus size plus size, and if you can't see me, I'm using air quotes, plus size being in the back of the store in its own department, like that felt revolutionary, which is insane. Yeah. Right. That we've sort of come to accept how normal it is that the mannequins are like a double zero and that that's what, oh, this is what it's supposed to look like when the clothes hang off of you because you have zero body fat percentage and just how often that's being reinforced for us again and again and again, that that's what our bodies are supposed to be, which is Mm -hmm. just absolutely wild. So I love that reminder. I do think that something, there were so many awful parts, absolutely, but something great that came out of the pandemic was that people really figured out how to incorporate fitness into their home. So they turned to YouTube, they, you know, got to watch videos and do, so you have people who were trying stuff or accessing things that they hadn't been able to do before, which is so great. And I love the reminder of how important it is to see people who look like you doing what you're doing. Even things like if for the longest time, the only ones you saw running were men, or for the longest time, if the only ones you saw attempting fitness were younger women who had a certain body type, Mm -hmm. then it just creates, even if you're not conscious of it, it creates a wall between where you are and what you think is possible for you. So uh, I love that reminder. And I, I love the history. I just, I really want to acknowledge you for this because this was a, I can't even imagine the amount of research that this took because it's really well-researched and not just well-researched, well-written because lots of people do great research, but it's not always entertaining to read. And I am a massive history nerd. So I love understanding how we got where we are and and what things went into that. So I just really want to acknowledge your creation because you can tell how much your heart went into it and like the passion that you're bringing. Yeah. It's awesome for listeners who have gotten just like what we've talked about today is literally scratching the very surface because the book is so great and there's so much more information in it. Tell us about the book. Tell them where they can find you. Where can they learn more? Like give all those details. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And the project really was and sort of continues to be a labor of love for me. So I I really appreciate everything you said. You can find the book, I mean, pretty much wherever books are sold, as they say. You can learn more on my website, danielle-friedman.com. And I also am pretty active on Instagram at Danielle Friedman Writes, where I share a lot of fun 
and sometimes kind of shocking, like vintage fitness material and archives. And I'm on Twitter at dfriedmanwrites. Nice. And are you staying in the same vein with fitness and that conversation? Are you looking into new things? Like as you research, I know it's like talking, it's like someone who just had a baby and then you're like, when are you having your next baby? <laughs> but as a, at least for me, whenever I'm have created something, I'm always kind of like, Ooh, and this is what is interesting for me next. Totally. No, I mean, I, I'm really fortunate because I, I loved the experience of researching and writing this book. It really was, you know, and I know this is not the case with all projects or for all writers, but it really was like the journey was as gratifying as the destination. So I'm eager to take on another in-depth project like this. For now, I'm I'm mostly, I've been contributing stories to the New York Times Well section. I actually just wrote a piece about how I learned to embrace being a slow runner and move away from achievement metrics. So I was, yes, it yes. might be up your alley. I'm um, the slowest runner. I'm like, <laughs> I cannot run fast, but I can run long. Exactly. I won't do it exactly. quickly, but I'll do it. Endurance. Yes. <laughs> That's where it's yes. at for me. I hope to to kind of launch on a new book project soon that, that is in the realm of women's history and culture and, and health. And I'm, I'm exploring a few ideas right now. Cool. So stay tuned. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. Good luck with that. That's awesome. Thank well, you. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you for the wisdom and the story sharing. And I just really want to encourage listeners to go grab the book. I super enjoyed it. And the women who keep seeing me read it and are like, oh, so I'm not the (laughs) only one. So yeah, thanks, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me on. The Rachel Hollis podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble.